why do we listen to who we listen to? There are an awful lot of advisors and counselors and writers and speakers and, and motivators in the world that we spend all kinds of money and time and, and energy listening to and saying, oh yeah, that's good, yeah, say that. And when we draw back and think about it, it's just one person to another. And I do understand, some people may have some experience in some things, but if you ask me as a parent going through it the second time around, I'm, I'm not making any of the mistakes I made the first time. I'm making all new mistakes. <laughs> I think about the fact that for 6,000 years of civilization, how are we doing? How is humanity? Have we really improved the situation on planet Earth? And so again, why do we keep listening to other people. Why in the world would you sit here this morning and listen to me? And I hope that you don't come to listen to Pastor Rick. My experience is only, only goes so far. My hope is that we come to hear the Word of God. And to really test the Word of God. That's why we have our Bibles open. I've gone over this before. Bibles open, focusing on God's Word, seeking to understand what the Lord is saying, not what some man or some woman would advise you with. And when it comes to Jesus, the same question could be asked. Why should we listen to Jesus? I mean, if He was just another human being who walked the face of the earth, why Jesus any more than Dr. Phil? Why Jesus more than Oprah? Why Jesus more than anyone else who's ever wandered the face of the earth? Why this guy? And the truth is, because if He is who He said He was, then we're talking about a completely different ballgame here. And Jesus Himself left us no option but to believe that He is God. He's not just a good teacher. Oh, He's that. He's not just a great prophet. Yeah, He's that too. But He said, I am in the Father, and the Father is in Me. I and the Father are one. And by the way, that's not some weird spiritual esoteric oneness like I can be one with the sky. Like what's her name in the movie Frozen? What's her name, Hannah? Elsa. Elsa. I'm one with the sky. Whatever. What does that mean? That you're an airhead? Come on. Jesus is one with the Father because Jesus is God in the flesh. And that being the case, when Jesus speaks, I want to listen. Because here's someone who is not limited to 33 years of experience in his teaching. This is someone who teaches from eternity and who teaches a great reality. And so this morning we come to Jesus. He's been teaching us throughout the Gospel of Luke. And as we listen to Him, we come to a place in verse 11, Luke 19, verse 11, that says, While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell them a parable. Now, before you go on, it's while they were listening to these things. What things? Well, they're in Jericho, at the house of Zacchaeus, And the very last thing that Jesus said in verse 9 was today salvation has come to this house because he, Zacchaeus too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man, speaking of himself, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. (laughs) That's not something I can do. I can seek, I can invite, I can try and, and talk to people about biblical things, but I cannot save you. Jesus came to do that. And that's the context of this because now He goes on to tell a parable. 
Verse 11 continues, it says, He tells this parable because He was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Luke does us a favor. He gives us little hints before the parables. Here's why Jesus is telling this parable. It's because they thought the kingdom was about to happen. They thought going up to Jerusalem, and they knew Jesus was headed that way. He's in Jericho now, 18 miles, rough terrain up to Jerusalem. And they thought in their hearts and their minds, He's going to go up to Jerusalem and establish the kingdom. He's going to claim His right to the throne of David. We're going to fight Rome. It's going to get messy. But we're going to win back this land and the kingdom's going to start now. And I don't understand how they could think that. Because Jesus had just told them otherwise. If you draw back a little bit further into chapter 18 of Luke, look at verse 31. It says, He took the twelve aside, that is His twelve apostles, and He said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For He will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and mistreated, and spit upon. And after they have scourged Him, they will kill Him, and the third day He will rise again. Jesus is specific. Not just some of the things talked about in the ancient prophets, all of the things talked about in the ancient prophets are going to be fulfilled in the Son of Man. In Myself, Jesus would say. And that includes Psalm 22. What's Psalm 22 say? My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? Including Isaiah 53. He was pierced through for our transgressions. These things spoken by the Hebrew prophets, Jesus is saying, that's got to be fulfilled. You need to understand what's about to happen. He's telling the guys, we're going up to Jerusalem and it is going to get bloody, but it's going to be My blood. It's going to be My blood. Why were Jesus' words difficult for them to understand? Because it says in verse 34, the disciples understood none of these things and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them and they did not comprehend the things that were said. The things were hidden from them. What what does that mean, hidden from them? Why would Jesus say something and then conceal it? Is that what's going on here? Jesus speaks these words, I'm going to be crucified, but I don't want you to understand that that's what I mean when I say I'm going to be crucified. That would be a divine intervention, I guess. Maybe the Lord trying to shield them from what was about to take place. I don't think so. I don't think the hiddenness of what Jesus says is divine intervention. I think it's dumb ignorance. They didn't want to hear it. Which is very much human nature. We don't want to hear what's coming that's negative. We tend to ignore the inevitable. You know, we want to deny whatever is difficult. And so when we hear something difficult is coming, we're like, eh, 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 no, 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 I don't want to. It's the Scarlett O'Hara syndrome. I won't think about that today. I'll think about it tomorrow. We are great at putting off the difficult stuff in life. And I think that's what's going on with the apostles. It's dumb ignorance. He says, look, I mean, how, how plain can you be? I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, mocked, mistreated, spit upon, scourged, and I'm going to be killed. Can you, can you say that any plainer? Well, I don't want to hear that. I mean, he's, he's talking spiritual again. It's another parable or something. And so they didn't get it. The book of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 says, 
Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's what sin does. It's just plain deceitful. He says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. And that's why Jesus told this parable. He told it because the kingdom was not going to happen immediately. It is a parable of perseverance. It is a parable as we get into it and you'll see where Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. Because I'm going to be a long time coming. Understand He said that 2,000 years ago. Now some hear that and they say, oh, well that means we got plenty of time. Others hear that and they say, oh wow, if it's been 2,000 years, we don't have long to go. A parable for perseverance. A word to steal against the disappointment that the apostles would have or might have when the kingdom did not show up immediately. We have kind of an opposite problem today. The, the apostles, even the first century church, assumed that the kingdom was immediate. Right, Even after Jesus died and was resurrected and ascended back to heaven, the apostles and the early church all said, well, He's going to be back any minute. And they lived that way. There was an urgency to the message of the Gospel. There there was a desire in their hearts. There was a passion to be together in fellowship all the time. Not just twice a week, but constantly. Because they had this sense, the kingdom is imminent. It's coming any minute. And that's how they live their lives. Whereas today, people tend to think, we've got all the time in the world. So I won't think about that today. I'll think about it tomorrow. And it was James, brother of Jesus, who wrote in James 4, verse 13, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Let me just get a heads up. Hands hands up here. Who knows exactly what your life is going to be tomorrow? I'm not asking what are your plans. Who knows what's going to happen? We don't know. And James says, you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor. You're gas. (laughs) I'm not going to punt off of that one. We'll just leave that alone. You're a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. That's the substance of your life. Why do we keep putting off recognizing the inevitable? Now again, 2,000 years ago, Jesus tells this parable. But whether it was distant as it was for them or imminent as I believe it is for us today, Jesus gives a way to live. And that's really the heart of the parable. Well, let's look at it. Verse 12. So he said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities. Well, the second came saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, You are to be over five cities. Another came saying, Master, here's your mina. 
which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you're an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. It's kind of a stupid thing to say to a master. (laughs) And he said to him, By your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. And then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. They said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Wow. Jesus knew how to tell a story. And what's really interesting about this parable is the specifics of the story. And you might already be comparing it with another parable Jesus told in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. Parable of the talents. But this one's unique. And this one has the stuff, almost. it almost sounds, I don't know, historical. Like he's talking about something that happened, and he is. In fact, the people hearing it in that day would have had an immediate recollection of an event of something that happened, as described here, some 30 years or so before. Around 4 B.C., when Herod the Great died, Herod the Great divided his kingdom there in Judea, Samaria, up and down. He divided it into three regions. And in those three regions, his three sons were given authority over those three areas. His son Archelaus was given authority over Judea, Samaria, and Idumea, which is, goes down into Edom and Petra across the Dead Sea. So Archelaus is given this, this authority along with the other two sons, but because the whole area was under the authority of Rome... He had to go to Rome and meet with Caesar Augustus and get approval to reign in authority over this land. Okay, So Archelaus went to a distant country to receive a kingdom to himself and then return, just as verse 12 of the parable says. He goes there, but when he went, Archelaus, and Josephus tells us this, Archelaus left sums of money with different ones of his servants to invest and to advance his cause while he was away in Rome. But the people of Judea despised him. They didn't like Herod the Great. They certainly didn't like any of his three sons. And so they actually sent a commission following after him. They sent a commission to Rome to protest Archelaus being their ruler. Just as verse 14 tells us, his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Well, as the story goes, historically, the emperor Augustus gave authority to Archelaus anyway, and when he returned, he had 3,000 people massacred because they didn't want him to reign over them. Jesus is telling this parable, and he knew how to capture attention. And no doubt the people listening to the parable are going, wait, I've heard this story. Oh, that's, that's the story of Archelaus. But it's obvious Jesus is applying it. He's using it for a purpose. And so perhaps the people were intrigued. And yet you and I know something about this parable. The truth is, the nobleman was not Archelaus after all, but was Jesus Himself. 
Verse 12 again says, He said a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And Jesus is the nobleman. Jesus is that noble man. Pilate would come out and say, Behold the man! And truly, Jesus is the man. He's the one who went to the distant country to receive a kingdom and He is going to return. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul said, He, that is the Lord, raised Him, raised Jesus from the dead, and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and everyone, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet, and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him, who fills all in all. Now, does that just sound like another guy to listen to? Is that just another self-help guru? This is the king, the nobleman who went to a distant country, who ascended to heaven and has all rule and authority. He has the right. And by the way, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but he earned the right. He's the only king I know of in all of earth's history who had the right, gave it up, earned it, and now has it again. And that's Jesus. Paul said in Philippians 2.9, God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Not that Jesus Christ is a good guy. Jesus Christ is teacher. Jesus Christ is prophet. No, Jesus Christ is Lord. And note what Paul said, every tongue will say that. There is coming a day, wherever you are right now, and only you know that, God knows that, I don't know, but wherever you are in your life right now, there is coming a day where you will say, Jesus is Lord. And I invite you to say it today. But I'll let you think about that a little bit. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. He is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to Him. Now, back to the parable. Before He left, Jesus gave us gifts. And He gave us a gift. We're told in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, Therefore it says, When He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. He gave us gifts, and He gave us a gift. And that, my friends, is the big difference between the two parables. Now here's where you got to put your thinking yarmulkes on. Okay? Maybe you're wondering about the repeat of the parable of the talents. The parable of the talents. I'm not going to read it right now, but if you go to Matthew 25, verses 14-30, through 30, that's the parable of the talents. And Jesus told that parable as well. Parable of the talents, parable of the minas. A mina is a sum of money. A talent was a sum of money. So they're very similar. They're very similar in that a person goes away and leaves some money with some servants and says, do something with this, and then comes back and calls them to account for what they did. But that's where the similarity ends. It's fascinating to me. I'm going to give you four, four areas. I'll tell you what they are right up front, and then I want to go a little deeper into them. So on the surface, four differences between the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 and the parable of the minas in Luke 19. The first difference is the region. The region in which the parable is even given. 
The parable of the talents is given on the Mount of Olives after Jesus had already entered into Jerusalem. The parable of the Minas is given in Jericho before Jesus gets up into Jerusalem. So we're in two completely different places. In the parable of the talents, the resource, that's the second thing, the resource, one talent is equal to 15 years of wages. It's a lot of money. In the parable of the mina, the resource, one mina is equal to about 30 bucks. The parable of the talent, gang, the talent is 60 times more valuable monetarily than the mina is. That's a big difference. And Jesus doesn't just slip up. There's a reason for that. The responsibility is different. So the region, the resource, the responsibility. In the parable of the talents, each servant is entrusted with different amounts of money. One is given five talents. One is given two talents. One is given just one. In the parable of the mina, the responsibility is that each servant is given the exact same thing. That's a big difference too. They're all given the same amount. And finally, the region, the resource, the responsibility, and the recompense. The recompense. At the end of the parable of the talents, the, the servants who had invested, who had, who had made more, were given greater responsibility. Greater responsibility, and they were given entrance into the joy of their master. Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the master. Not so with the parable of the minas. They're not given greater responsibility as much as greater authority. The one who has the ten minas is given ten cities. The one who's given the... the, Or actually, no, they all are given the same thing. Sorry. One makes ten minas of the one mina. He's given ten cities. Another one makes five minas. He's given five cities. So you're with me? You see the differences there? Okay. Let's go back and think through this a little deeper. Number one, the responsibility. I'm going to take them a little out of order. The responsibility. Why the difference? The talents versus the minus. The talents in Matthew 25 speak of spiritual gifts. And I think very obviously they do. Spiritual gifts, innate abilities, what God has blessed you to be able to do, whether it's just a natural talent or a spiritual gift, These all are given by God, from God, and they're different for every person. Different amounts. Some have a lot of gifts. Others don't seem to have as many gifts. It doesn't matter. It's not the number of the gifts. It's what you do with them. And so from the artist to the healer, from the craftsman to the prophet, all talents and gifts are from Him, and they're doled out in different ways. Amounts. Keep your finger there in Luke 19 and go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Turn to your Bibles to the right, just a few books. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now again, we're talking about the parable of the talents. To one servant he gave five talents. To another servant, two talents. To another servant, just one talent. They all got different talents. In the same way, check this out. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts for the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects in the same God who works all things in all persons. But verse 7 says, To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Skip down to verse 11. Verse 11. 
He says, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as we ask. Oh wait, no, it doesn't say that. Distributing to each one individually just as He wills. Which, you know what that means? That means Les's gifts are not going to be the same as my gifts. Why? Because God created Les and knows what Les needs and knows how Les will function best. He created me. He knows how I'm going to function best. There are giftings Les has that are not me. We're all created uniquely. There's a difference among us and God knows that and so He doles out differently. God knows what we need. God knows who we are. And so the Spirit distributes to each person as He desires, as He wills, not as as we will. Skip on down to about verse 27. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are Christ's body. And individually, members of it, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, the second prophets, and third teachers, and then miracles, and then gifts of healing, and helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? And all do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And the talents in Matthew 25 speak of this. Different talents and different amounts given to different people as the Master desires, as He determines. And Jesus would say, whatever your talent is, invest it for the kingdom. Some of you one-talent people, you know, you're wandering around, you got your one little talent. You're like, this is all I got. This is it. I'd love to have five talents. I'd like to be the guy with the ten talents. You know, I'd love to have twenty talents. But all he gave me was one. Invest it. Invest it for the kingdom. Use it for the Lord. There's a reason He gave you one. It may be ADD. I don't know. (laughs) And those of you with multiple talents, use them for the Lord. Invest them in the kingdom. The problem is in our flesh, we invest in ourselves. Or in other people. Or in things that burn up and go away in this world. God says, no, you invest in the kingdom. Whatever I've given you. And it may be a lot, and it may be a little. It doesn't matter. You invest it. And see what I do. Spiritual gifts specifically. And what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 12, when someone gives their life to Jesus and he begins to give them certain gifts and abilities in the church, I remind you again, I know I've said this before, the spiritual gifts are not for you. They are given to you as royal tools. As Kingdom utensils, if you will. The ability to to, to speak in other languages. The ability to heal. The gifts of mercy, compassion. These are kingdom tools and they are not for building up the individual, but for building up the body. And for reaching out to those who don't know Jesus yet. And when you're talking about just basic abilities, maybe not even spiritual gifts, but just abilities that people have. Man, can you sing? Sing for the Lord. Can you write? Put your pen to paper for Jesus. You know, do you have a strong back? Man, shoulder a load for the Lord. Whatever you have, whatever, well, I'll let Paul tell you, Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. 
And I'll tell you what, for every gift, talent, or ability that I have, when I use it for Jesus, man, the result is great. When I use it for myself, not so much. It goes away. (coughs) Spiritual gifts, though, they are for ministry in the church so that the body can do what it's supposed to do in this world and it's a testimony for the lost. For people who don't know Jesus, that's why the gifts are given. But back to Luke 19. You might keep a finger in 1 Corinthians 12 if you want to. Back in Luke 19, while there are uniquely different talents in the parable of the talents, there's just one mina. Just one. Ten servants, ten minas. Everybody gets just one. Look at verse 13. He called ten of his slaves. He gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business until I come back. Here you go. Thirty bucks. Do business. Do business. The the phrase, do business, is... Well, this gets about as pragmatic as it gets in Christianity. Because the phrase, do business, is pragmatuomai in the Greek. And it's where we get our word pragmatic. Pragmatuomai, which means, be occupied. It's the original Occupy movement. Right here. Be occupied. Not with tent cities and complaining that the man hasn't taken care of you. Be occupied with the work of the kingdom. Whatever you have, invest it. Do it. Get to work. Get busy. Well, I don't like to talk about work. I like to talk about shalom myself. I like the peace and the rest part of of following Jesus because the kicking back, yeah, I'm down with that. But the work... Sounds a little works righteousness. It sounds like you got to earn your way into heaven. I'm not saying that. Jesus is talking to people who are already going to heaven. How are they going to heaven? By grace. That's the only way you go to heaven. It's never by anything that you do. But once you receive grace, once you are walking among the saved by faith in Jesus, He says, get to work. Remember, this parable is told because the kingdom is going to take a while. And so he's motivating and energizing the apostles early on. I want, I've got some work for you to do. This is not going to be, poof, the kingdom. I want you to roll up your sleeves and get about the business of it. Be faithful what's, with what's been given to you. And note this again. Every servant is given the same thing. And because of that, he cannot be talking about spiritual gifts. Because we are not given the same thing. We're given different amounts of spiritual gifts and different gifts to different people. But here, every single one of the servants gets the exact same thing of the exact same value, the same mina. What is the one thing above all other things that every single believer is given to invest in the kingdom? The gospel. We all get the gospel. Every man, every woman, every child who comes to faith in Jesus is handed the mina of the gospel. You get it. Everybody. It's yours not to hold, not to tuck away in a napkin, not to stick in your pocket, but it's yours to give. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark 16, 15. Go into all the world, Jesus said, and preach the gospel to all creation. Who, Lord? You, Rick. You go. You preach. You take the gospel. It is the single greatest responsibility of every single follower of Jesus Christ. 
to give the gospel. And by the way, it's the greatest investment you'll ever make in another person's life. I can get my daughter Hannah to come up here and sing you a song. And you can go, ooh, ah, ee, oh. At least that's what I do. Typically in that order, ooh, ah, ee, oh. But I can have her sing for her. Oh, that was one. How was it? Go out to lunch. Yeah, that was a great song. And then it's gone. And in the moment, it might have assisted in worship, but it did not save you. Gang, there's not a single spiritual gift out there that can save you like the gospel. Everybody is given the gospel. And you might say, well, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's a problem here. Because the talent is worth 60 times more than the mina. So are you saying that the spiritual gifts are worth 60 times more than the gospel? Okay, let's go to the second thing, the resource. You're given talents, you're given the mina. You're given spiritual gifts, you're given the gospel, and the responsibility is use it for the kingdom. But the resource... The talent obviously seems far more valuable, at least, at least at first. Back over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul has just said, I will show you a still more excellent way. And in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries... And I have all knowledge. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Understand this. The Gospel, like the mina, may seem a little thing. It's just a message after all. But the Gospel is the love of God. And you may have a great spiritual gift. And Paul says, big deal. Yeah, but I can prophesy. Woohoo! Oh, but I got all knowledge wonderful for you. Yeah, but I've done so much for the poor in this world and in this life. Hey, that's great. That's fantastic. But if you don't have love, it's worthless. Which is why I've said before, philanthropy is a worthless endeavor unless the focus is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Gifts of healing. Oh, I healed someone. I brought someone back from the dead. Fantastic. They're going to die again. (laughs) But that guy was sick and I made him well. Wonderful. He's going to get sick again. You know, all the gifts that we place such emphasis on and we value so highly... Oh, he's got lots of gifts. That's fantastic. But this one simple, tiny little mina of a message, it saves lives for all eternity. What are you saying? I'm saying the investment of the Gospel yields eternal dividends and there's not a spiritual gift that can do that. The Gospel. The Gospel. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Paul even says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, and think like a child, and reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. He says, faith, hope, and love, 
These three abide. But the greatest of these is love. And there is no greater message of love in this world than the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's the message that says, Hey, I love you so much, I will die for you. I'll take your place. And through my resurrection, Jesus speaking, I will give you eternal life. You can live forever with me. What else does that? Who else can offer that? Nobody but Jesus. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16, the Gospel is a power greater than any gift. Oh, it may seem a trifle at first. It may seem a minor of a thing, but it is huge in eternal dividends. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so the responsibility is great to give it out. And of course the resource is interesting that the Gospel that seems to be such a small thing yields such great dividends. By the way, why the difference in the region? Number three, the region. I'm just kind of still chewing on this one, but think about it. The picture is interesting to me. The parable of the minas, speaking of, I believe again, the gospel was given in Jericho before Jesus entered into the city. The parable of the talents, speaking of the spiritual gifts, is given on the Mount of Olives after Jesus has entered the city. What are you saying? I'm saying the Gospel makes an entrance into the heart for Jesus. And once the Gospel first enters the heart, then the gifts come. Then the talents are offered. Then the the work of God begins in the Holy Spirit in our hearts. It's Gospel first, gifts later. Gospel first, gifts second. For the Gospel is what brings you to Jesus. And the gifts are given once you've given your life to Him. I think it's also interesting that Jesus teaches the parable of the talents related to spiritual gifts on the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives, where they made the olive oil for the temple. That oil that is a picture in the Bible of the Holy Spirit. And so again, the spiritual gifts. But back to the parable at hand. The point of the mina is not the amount, not right up front, it's what we do with it. I was a kid going to church growing up. Many of you know that. I heard this word gospel thrown around all the time. I was amazed, I think around the age of 10, when I finally learned that gospel means good news. I was like, oh, well that makes sense. I didn't know what it meant. Gospel this, gospel that, whatever. That's a church word. No, it just means the good news. It's the proclamation of the good news. And the Gospel coming in, the Gospel speaking of what Jesus did for us, is a remarkable thing. And I didn't understand, and I'm just, I think, beginning to, that the real power, Christians listen to this, the real power that you have in this world is the simple message of the Gospel. How many people have you told this last week? It's a message so simple. Jesus loves you. He came into this world and died for you, taking your place for your sins on the cross. He resurrected again, offering you eternal life. That's the Gospel. And that's our message. 
That's the one He's given us. And what we do or don't do with the Gospel is going to have direct bearing on the coming kingdom. I'll talk about that in just a second. But you know, I, I keep thinking, I know we're, a lot of us are thinking about the new building over here on Troxel, and we're going to be in there. And I can tell you right now, just standing in that new building, there's more room, which is nice. And there are those who are saying, yeah, but I think it's going to fill up fast. Hey, that's up to the Lord. Actually, the filling of that building is up to two things. It's the Lord's will for it, which I believe it is His will. And it's our willingness to invest the mina. Every one of us have the mina. Every one of us. There is not a person here. Oh, you may not have the gift of teaching. You may not have the gift of prophecy. You may not have the gift of tongues or the gift of healing or the gift of of mercy. But you have the gospel. And it is greater than any gift given. Now check this out. Number four, the recompense. Jesus invites us to invest the simple message of the Gospel in the lives of other people. Tell them about Jesus. Just tell them about Jesus. And here comes the recompense back in Luke 19, verse 15. When He returned after receiving the kingdom, He ordered these slaves to whom He had given the money to be called to Him so that He might know what business they had done. And the first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. Wow, 30 bucks to 300 bucks. Not bad. And he said to him, Well done, good slave. Because you've been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. Then he said to him also, Well, you are to be over five cities. And another came, saying, Master, here's your mina, which I put away in a handkerchief. Which, by the way, is the same thing you blow your nose with. This is the guy's attitude toward the mina. For I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man taking up what you did not lay down, reaping what you did not sow. And he said, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you not know that I am an exacting man taking up what I did not lay down, reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. I mean, at least do that. Verse 24. And then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. Yeah, well now he's got ten minas plus one. I tell you that everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. What's he talking about? The more faith you have, the more faith you're going to be given. The more bold you are, the more boldness will be given to you. The more you give the Gospel, the more opportunity you're going to have to give the Gospel even more. But this is what I want you to see. The result of investing that little mina, of investing the Gospel, it was ten cities. That's not a bad investment. If someone came to you today and says, here, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you 30 bucks and I want you to invest it, and if you do well, I'm going to put you uh, in governorship over ten cities. That's incredible. It's unheard of. So what are we talking about? We're talking about authority based on how we handle the gospel which has been given to us. Again, a mina today worth about 30 bucks. The guy who invested the one mina comes up with ten minas. He's now the governor over ten cities, and that's how the spread of the gospel works. Don't miss this. You invest one mina in one life, eventually you have ten cities worth of people who have been saved. 
We can't see right now. I mean, I've, I've had this conversation, people saying, yeah, but I, just, I, don't really, I don't really know what to say, and when I do, I get challenged on it, and you know, besides what difference really am I going to make? You know what, if you share the gospel with one person in your life, and that person is saved, for one thing, the eternity of that person's salvation is incredible, but you have no idea where that message is going. One minor, ten cities. And I can't wait. When we get to heaven, I want to have conversations with people. I want to know how people got saved. Who would you hear from? Who told you this? Why are you here? Everybody will be there by grace. But when we can look back and see all the strands, the networking of the message of the gospel going out, it will blow our minds. And you may be the one minor person, or maybe the you know who, maybe you were given one and you made five more. You didn't make as much as someone else. Maybe you invested the gospel just in one life. You have no idea how much that's spreading. Do not underestimate the power of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think Jesus is hinting at an actual truth here, a literal truth. Which is the degree, the degree to which we are faithful with the simple message of Jesus and salvation. If we are faithful with that, it will directly affect our positions in the coming kingdom. Governorship over ten cities or over five cities. Revelation chapter 1 verse 6 says, He has made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. To Him the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's made us that. He's invited us. That little guy's having a bad morning. (laughs) He has made us to rule and reign with Him. I mean, why? What did I do to deserve that? Nothing. Share the Gospel. You take the simple message. Revelation 5.10 You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Revelation 20, verse 6, they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. And that's a literal thousand years. To rule and to reign with Him. Here's the deal. Everybody's given the same gospel. Not everybody will have the same number of cities in the kingdom. Everybody is given the same mina. Some will govern ten cities, some will govern five, and it all depends on what we do with the simple gospel that we've been given. And that's, I believe, what Jesus means. He says in Revelation 22.12, Behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. And that is not salvation. Far too many people have confused hearing things like that. Well, He's going to render it to us according to what we've done, so if we do enough good, we'll get into heaven. That's not it. He is talking to the saved. And He's saying, I'm going to render to all of My people, everybody who is saved by My grace, I have gifts for you. I have rewards. I have responsibilities. I have authority. And I'm going to give it to you based on what you did in the kingdom. For the kingdom. What about those who do nothing? Do nothing? Get nothing. That's pretty simple. And I'm not necessarily saying you won't be there, just that you won't have a whole lot to do. If you do nothing with the mina, the gospel that He's given you, you tuck it away, you put it in a napkin, then in the coming kingdom, you won't have much to do. 
And some will say, well, I don't want responsibility over a city anyway. You know, I just want to kick back with my Xbox 8 Millennial Edition (laughs) and ride out the kingdom. That's how I'm just going to chill. Listen, the kingdom age, gang, according to what I see in Scripture, is going to be absolutely different than this age right here. Amen. C.S. Lewis says, joy is the serious business of heaven. The Bible says, Psalm 110, verse 3, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. What does that mean? Oh, pick me, pick me, Jesus. Send me. I want to go. Let me do that. We're going to be in the glorified bodies. We're not going to get tired. We're going to have all kinds of energy. And the work of the kingdom is going to be fun. It's going to be all about righteousness and goodness. Caring for people. Being sent to different places, different locations for Jesus. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I tell you this, you are going to want to be involved in the kingdom. Not sitting there on the sidelines going, well, I still have my mind now. Because you won't. Because that will be taken from you and given to the one who has ten. What are you willing to do for Jesus now? What are you willing to do in this life right now for Jesus Christ? And I hate to go there, but I have to. This story ends on a very serious note. Verse 27. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Archelaus did that. These enemies that sent that delegation to me to follow me back out there to Rome... To protest against me being a leader, I'll deal with them. 3,000 massacred. Because they wouldn't follow him. Because they didn't want him to be their king. And there are several Bible commentators out there who see the end of this parable as so harsh, they're like, there's no way this can have to do with Jesus. There is no way that the nobleman here can be Jesus in the story. But go back and look at verse 14. Which says... His citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Roughly a week after the telling of this parable, Pontius Pilate will stand on that podium before the people. And in John 19 verse 15 he says, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Translation. We don't want Jesus to reign over us. We don't want Jesus as a king. When they tried to put Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, on the cross behind him, when Pilate had that tacked up, remember they complained, don't put that up there. Say that he said, I I say that I am the king of the Jews. Don't, Don't put that on us. They're still saying, we don't want him to reign over us. We reject the authority of Jesus Christ. And one of the challenges in both the church and in the world is while we love the idea of Jesus as a Savior, we reject the notion of Jesus as Lord. But it is the Lordship of Jesus Christ that saves you. And without... Again, He is the only person in history who had the right to rule from all eternity, gave up that right, emptied Himself, became nothing, Paul says, even became obedient to death on a cross... And then, after being resurrected, received back that authority. 
if you ever would ask, or if you ever hear someone say, what right does Jesus have to be my Lord? He earned the right. Do you realize how significant that is? People today, an atheist might say, I reject God. What right does God have? You know, well, aside from the fact that He's your Creator. Let's just set that one aside. He, even being our Creator, earned the right for us to worship Him by sacrificing Himself for us. How remarkable is the Gospel message. And yet, if we reject it, here's what I'm saying. While Jesus is in nature completely different than Archelaus, He's not a mean, harsh, brutal, bloodthirsty ruler. No, He is a gracious, merciful, compassionate, loving Savior. That's the heart of Christ. But our acceptance of Jesus or our rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord is a life or death decision. And we've got to get serious about it, folks. It's a life or death decision that we have in this little mina in the Gospel. And we don't have time to pass it off and say, I'll get around to telling so-and-so next week. I'll I'll call my brother later. I'll check with my sister later. I'll let mom or dad know another time. It's life or death. It is life. That is the reason for the seriousness of the end of the parable. It is life. It is death. Jesus said in Revelation 2.10, Be faithful until death. I will give you the crown of life. Just take that mina. First of all, you've got to take it. Receive the Gospel. Believe in Jesus. And then invest that truth in the lives of other people. Remember why Jesus told the parable. It was because they supposed the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So I ask you, that was 2,000 years ago, what about us now, upon whom the end of the ages is fast approaching? What are you going to do with the Gospel? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in the amazing nuances and complexity of Your teaching and Your incredible ability to put a parable together even based off an historical account and bring truth in a way that perhaps we've never seen it before. We, we praise You. We honor You. You are the great Rabbi. But it is the reality, Lord Jesus, that You gave of Yourself that You became our Gospel in Your death, in Your burial, in Your resurrection. And Lord, we owe You everything. We don't deserve even the mina that You've given us. And yet You freely gave. Lord, among us here this morning, there may be some who have never received the Gospel, who have never just accepted the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I pray that that decision will come today. I pray, Lord, that You will open hearts and that You will speak truth. And if you are sitting here this morning as we pray and you want to receive Jesus Christ as Lord, you want the assurance of eternal salvation, it's very simple. Pray with me right now in your heart to the Lord and say... Jesus, I receive the Gospel. I believe that You came to this world. I believe that You 
were nailed to that cross, that You took my place. And dying, You took away my sin. And I pray Your forgiveness. And I pray, Lord, that as You resurrected to eternal life, that I might follow Your footsteps. I might resurrect with You. When You come in that great day, when You call me home, and I acknowledge right now that You, Jesus Christ, are Lord as well as Savior over my life. And I want to pray for our fellowship. And Lord Jesus, I ask that over the Bridge Fellowship, You will pour out such a passion for investing the Gospel that we will not be able to help but share it. That we cannot keep our mouths closed. I pray for opportunity upon opportunity. For as Your Word tells us, we are of little strength, but You have opened before us the door. I pray the door would open ever wider. I ask for this to be a place of receiving people who, like everyone here, were at one time lost. People who don't know You today. May this be a place where people can find salvation and grace and joy and life in You, Lord Jesus. Use us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.